Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. been going through the book of Hosea for quite some time and we are in the portions of Hosea where we're dealing with God's accusations to various groups of people or indictments. It's, it's a just accusation that God has given to these people and last week we learned that the first accusation is because Israel's priests the, the leaders, to use modern-day terminology, the pastors of the people of Israel had gone astray. They had gone into apostasy. They were doing that which they were not supposed to do. And so this is what Pastor Jonathan covered last week in chapter 4. And interestingly enough, chapter 5 is just an increment to that. So what we see in chapter 5 is just an escalation of the fact that the priests were doing bad. So I'm going to have you read with me. We're going to read all of chapter 5, and then I'm going to try to go through it as, as accurately and as understandably as possible so that we can understand what the deal is with what's going on here in chapter 5 and why does God bring such an accusation. So let's read Hosea chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. But I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. Verse 12, but I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. 
I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. What we just read is all of Hosea chapter 5. It's divided into three sections. I'm going to spend most of my time in the first section because in essence, the rest of the chapter is God doing what he does based on what happens in the first seven verses. So section one, verses one through seven, God is bringing up Israel's lack of godly leadership. There is a lack of godly leadership, which God will then respond to. So verses 8 to 11, which is the second section, is a sound of alarm. It's Israel sounding the alarm because of what God's going to do in these verses. And then verses 12 to 14 is ultimately the judgment. God will deal with his people. Verse 15, which is the last verse in chapter 5, I think really should be verse 1 of chapter 6. But it's a transition. God gives a small message of hope in verse 15, and then it just goes into what we'll talk about next week, about this returning back to God and, and, and all that will take place in chapter 6. So again, three sections, Israel's lack of godly leadership, verses 8 through 11, the chaos of war, there's a sound of an alarm in Israel, and then verses 12 to 14, God deals with his people. Why has God dealt in the way that he does? So let's jump into the first section, the lack of godly leadership. So verse 1, I'm going to read it again. And I want you to pay attention to a theme here. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention or hear closely, O house of Israel. Give ear or listen, O house of the king. Did you notice that? Hear this. Pay attention. Listen, O house of the king. Three times in verse 1, God tells the priests, the leadership, hear, listen, pay attention. Why does he do this? Well, to, to answer it simply, one of the most famous verses in all of the Old Testament, particularly to Jewish culture, you can write this down if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 6.4. It's the famous Shema. It's, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, and the verse concludes, the Lord our God is one. But, but this verse in Deuteronomy 6 is something that Israelites are to always recite. They're to always say. They're to always repeat. They are to memorize this. And the emphasis is, if there was anything that the priests are supposed to do, they're supposed to hear God. Now, this isn't some mystical hearing. It means to follow the word. It means to follow his instructions. So since Deuteronomy 6, the instruction was always they are to hear the Lord. So why the emphasis in chapter 5, verse 1? What is Israel not doing? What are the priests not doing? They're not listening to the word. We learned this last week. What are they not doing? They're not following God's instructions. So now, now notice the pattern. It starts again, just like in chapter 4, with the priests. So hear, O priests. So the priests are not following the word. As a result, pay attention or hear closely, O house of Israel. So if the priests aren't listening to the word, well, what's the obvious thing? The leadership is not listening to the word. And if the leadership is not listening to the word, what's the result? The king 
is not listening to the word, or to put it another way, the nation is not listening to the word. To use modern terms, if the pastor leaves the preaching, if the elders leave the word, the congregation and its leadership will soon follow. And if the pastor and the congregation are in preaching the word, well, guess what? The nation will soon follow. The nation will also go astray. If the church is not speaking against cultural issues, then the world will follow. The world will assume that it's okay. And in our context, you see this a lot. So this is the first indictment. This is the first accusation. The priests and the leadership are not listening to God. They've stopped. The word of God has become irrelevant in Israel. It's been replaced. It's been something else has replaced God's word. So this is seen in the priests, in the leadership, and as a result in the nation. So this is the first accusation, and it's in verse 1. There is no word of God in Israel. That's the, the point here, the first accusation. Now, in verse 1, there's another accusation. So let me finish reading verse 1. The judgment is for you. I'll come back to that. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread upon Tabor. And then I'll read verse 2. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. So three things I want to point out in verses 1 and 2. This is in a sense, the second indictment, but, but notice here, a snare, a net. Again, you, you see the pattern. There's, there's three things. And then uh, uh, make slaughter. Really what it means there is dig pits. So again, verse 1 is they, they're not hearing, they're not listening closely, they're not giving ear, and it's the priest, the house of Israel, and the house of the king. And in the second part of verse 1, there is a net, a snare, and there is a pit. And so here's the point. These are instruments for hunting. So what's the second thing that these priests have done? So, so not only have they gotten rid of the word of God, but now in verse 2, it is the priest. The result of that is Israel has been trapped. This is the language here. This is the, the metaphor, the picture that Hosea is painting. So, so picture someone hunting for birds. They're going to lay a a trap. Picture someone trying to catch uh, an, an animal, and so they're going to throw out a net, which in, in a sense was the, the, the trap used to catch birds. You see a bird flying, you want to capture it in the olden days, they would throw a net, and it, the weights would bring the bird down, and then you'd eat it, you'd cook it, you'd eat it, and you would dig pits. So you dig a hole uh, big enough so that if a fox is running by, then they fall into the hole, and now you've caught the, the, the fox. So three times in verses 1 and 2, there is this mention of traps, of hunting devices. But I want you to notice that like in the beginning of verse 1, they're tied. So it's a snare at Mizpah. What happened at Mizpah? This is the point of the text. So what was the trap that these priests set up in Mizpah for the people of Israel? Well, the trap was they built a temple worship to the goddess Astarte. The Greeks called her Aphrodite, which I think is what we're most familiar with, the goddess of love. So what was the snare that the priest, so it's not that they got rid of the word, 
but they've also been putting traps for Israel. And in Mizpah, the trap was, let's go worship the goddess Astarte. A lack of word leads people into idolatry. It's not just true in Israel's time, it's true in our time. If we leave the word, if we leave the scriptures, if, if, if we put this to the side and say this is an old book, the only thing left, the only option left is idolatry. You will lead people to serve other gods, to worship other things. So that's the, that's the trap in Mizpah is that the temple was built and Israel started worshiping other gods. So what's the, the, the net at Tabor? Again, another instrument of trapping of, of, of trapping animals, the, the, the idea here is a mountain in Jezreel is where Tabor was located, and we've learned about Jezreel early on in Hosea. This mountain, this net in Tabor, was that Israel allowed a bunch of cult shrines where people could gather and worship fertility gods. So to put it as an example, you're having problems getting pregnant. Well, you don't trust in the Lord to see you through that. You go to these cult shrines. You go to Mount Tabor and you worship the gods and goddesses of fertility and hope that they will help you get pregnant. This was the second trap, the trap at, at, at Tabor. So these are the two traps. It's the same idea. The trap is that the priests, by getting rid of the word, have entrapped the people to worship idols. That's the point of the end of verse 1. But then notice verse 2. The revolters, and these words at times in English make us think a little bit more than they should, but in essence, the hunters have been caught in their own trap. So who are the hunters? Well, verse 1 lets us know. They're the priests, the leadership, and the king. They are the ones that got rid of the word, and as a result, put these traps. But now verse 2 lets us know that it's not just Israel that has been entrapped, but the revolters. So the ESV says the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. The Hebrew, what it's really saying in the original is the hunter fell into his own pit. The, the pit that was created to, to capture the fox or whatever, to, 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 to stick to the metaphor, now the hunter himself has fallen into. What's the point here? The priests are okay with idolatry. The, the pastor or the preacher, to use modern day term terminology, is okay with a false sense of who God is. This is the point of verses 1 and 2. So the priests are in hearing. The second indictment, the second accusation is the leadership of Israel has pushed people into idolatry and they themselves have fallen into it. They believe themselves that it is okay to worship other gods. So, notice verse 1, and then we'll move on here. What's the problem, or what's the, the result of not listening? Verse 1, the judgment is for you. So what is God going to do because the priests have gotten rid of the word? He's going to judge them. God will bring judgment to the priests. And again, we may look at this and go, why? And the answer is, because if anyone is supposed to lead people to God, it's who? The priests. Pastor Jonathan explained this well. This is all of chapter 4. If there's anyone who's not supposed to be getting drunk, it's the priests. But they were doing that in chapter 4. If there's anyone who's not supposed to be uh, going to cultric shrines, 
It's the priest. But they were doing that in chapter 4. And the examples go on and on and on. And it's the same idea in chapter 5. So because the priests have gotten rid of their priestly duties, which is to preach and teach the word of God, well, God will bring judgment to them. And in verse 2, because the priests have made it okay for people to worship idols, well, what's the result of that? I will discipline them. God will bring consequence to the priests. There is consequence to these priests. Now, what's the purpose of judging and what's the purpose of discipline? The purpose is that Israel would return back to God. The reason why God is doing this is, in, is because God wants Israel to return back to him. And we'll see this at the end here. But there is a purpose here. So the priests have gone astray. The priests have led people into idolatry. And as a result, God will judge them. I want you to notice this. He's not judging Egypt who worship these gods. He's not judging Assyria for worshiping these gods. He's judging the people of God. Why? Because it's the people of God that know that they're not supposed to worship these idols. So let me bring this to our times. If there is anyone that ought to know the word of God, it's every man and woman that calls themselves Christians. It's okay if the world falls into this idea that it's okay to get divorced for any reasons, uh, that, you know, it's okay to practice certain cultural norms, that, that it's okay to, to do these things. That's one thing. But it's another thing for Christians to herald these things. This is the, the problem with Israel, is that Israel knows the truth, and yet they've made it okay to worship other idols. They've made it okay, in a sense, to close the Old Testament or the Torah or their Bible and do whatever they want. This is why the judgment is so severe. In our day, if you call yourself a Christian, in other words, someone asks you in a survey or you're walking down the street, what is your religion? If your response is, oh, I'm a Christian, with that response comes the idea that you know this word. And not just that you know it, but that you follow it. So what the Bible calls sin is what? Sin. That's the idea. That's the message that we give out when we say we're Christian. Yet, I'm afraid that in our context, we can do this so easily. I'm a Christian, but this part of the Bible is outdated. I'm a Christian, but I can do certain things. And that's the mistake. That's the error. That's the mistake that the priests have made in Israel, that the leadership has made in Israel, that the king has made in Israel, and they will be judged. So those are two indictments. Verse 3, another one. I'm going to read it to you. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Ephraim, I have to explain this. And i got to give you uh, some history here, some Bible history. So just bear with me so that we understand why Ephraim is mentioned. Now, during this time, you can review the tape, but for those that haven't been here since Hosea chapter 1, one of the first things we mentioned early on is that in the time of Hosea, the nation of Israel, does anyone remember, is divided into how many kingdoms? 
two, the north and the south. Ephraim is part of the northern kingdom. And so to give you, why is Ephraim mentioned here? It's because it's the tribe that led the division of Israel in the north. Now there's 12 tribes of Israel. 10 of them will be in the north. Ephraim is the one that started the division. They're, they're the leaders of this division. And then in the south, Judah and Benjamin there's only two tribes of Israel that are in the south. So in Hosea, when you hear Ephraim, the reference is to the northern kingdom. So verse 3, Ephraim, I know Ephraim, so the leaders of the nation of the northern kingdom. And as a result, Israel, the rest of the kingdom. That's, and it's speaking specifically of the north. They're not hidden from me. What did Ephraim do? Ephraim played the whore. How? So here's the history. 1 Kings 11.31, you can just write this down. In 1 Kings 11.31, Israel is one nation. The 12 tribes are together. And the prophet Ahijah prophesies to Jeroboam and says, you will become king of the, out of the 10 tribes of Israel. He will become king of 10 out of the 12. Again, making reference to the north. At this time, King Solomon, which a lot of us should know the name, Solomon's temple, King Solomon. David's son is king of all 12 tribes. He hears about this, um, you know, gets upset. I'm just summarizing here. But eventually, Jeroboam flees to Egypt because he's afraid. He's afraid that Solomon's going to kill him, okay? In 1 Kings 12, 14, Solomon dies. Rehoboam, so Jeroboam, king of the north, Rehoboam is his son, and he follows foolish advice. You can read this in 1 Kings chapter 12. But basically, the advice is some young guys, some homies. Practical note, beware of your homies for the young people in the room. They're not always the wisest. A 16-year-old giving advice to a 16-year-old is not wisdom. It's the blind leading the blind. So this guy, instead of listening to the elders, listens to his homies, to the young people, and as a result, he, gets, he, he goes hard on all of Israel. He starts judging all of Israel. And what happens in 1 Kings 12, 20? The prophecy becomes complete. The 10 out of the 12 tribes are like, this dude is nuts. Rehoboam is nuts. And they go to Jeroboam, and the two kingdoms divide. So this is why Ephraim is mentioned. Jeroboam is from the tribe of Ephraim. He's the first king of the northern kingdom. This is why it's mentioned. But how does Jeroboam lead people to commit adultery. I want you to go with me as time is going fast to 1 Kings chapter 12. And we need to read this together. Go to, with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. And actually, correction, it's 2 Kings. Uh, let me make sure. Just No, yeah, my bad. 1 Kings chapter 12. I'm right. My notes are right. All right. 1 Kings 12. Verse 25, and I'll, I'll stop somewhere uh, in there. 1 Kings 12, 25. So this is why Ephraim is mentioned. Remember, Jeroboam is the first king. And here's what verse 25 says. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. So what he's referencing here is 
they're all going to go back to Judah. This is where the house of David was. Um, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the point here is, when Solomon's temple is built, Israel is to make sacrifices in Solomon's temple. And that temple, even though the two kingdoms are divided, that temple is in Judah. It's in the south. It's in the southern kingdom. So Jeroboam is afraid that as the people start going back to offering sacrifices and seeing the king of Judah, they're going to leave him and Israel's going to unite again. And eventually he's afraid they're going to kill him as the rest of the verse said. So uh, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So verse 28. So the king took counsel, again, from his homies, and he made two gold calves. Now some of you are familiar that in Exodus 32, Aaron made one golden calf. So this isn't new. This has been done before. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I want to stop there. Jeroboam, in fear that Ephraim and the northern kingdom will become all one tribe again, he wants to stay in power, makes two idols. This is the third accusation. When Hosea says that Ephraim played the whore, and then in verse 4, that the spirit of whoredom was within them, it's pointing out to this, that Jeroboam made two idols, one in Dan and, and First Korean, uh, sorry, First Kings 12 lets us know uh, where the other location is at. But the point is that he made two idols so that all of the northern kingdom had spots to worship idols. But notice, this is why I wanted to read this together. Not only does he make two idols like in Exodus 32, but he says, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is why my passion in the Old Testament are the first five books, because everything points back to the first five books. Some of you taking the Pentateuch class will remember that the Ten Commandments for the Jews, this is the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. So I'm citing here Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's out of the Bible. It's out of the scriptures. But now Rehoboam, and this is the spirit of harlotry, he uses the same lingo, but who brought them out? It's not God, but who? The two golden calves. Now why am I mentioning this? Why do I want to stress this? Why did I want to read this together? This is the third indictment. Look, look at the end of, uh, of verse uh, 3. You have played the whore and all of Israel. Again, this is the idea. If the king is bad, the priest and the leadership is bad, all of Israel will be bad. Ephraim played the whore, Jeroboam built two idols, and as a result, all of Israel is what? Defiled or unclean. But this is what I want to stress to you. It's not bad enough that in verse 2 they're worshiping other idols that the Egyptians made. But what's worse is that now Israel has made their own. So here, to put it another way, for the Christian, which is worse? To worship Buddha, which Christians would consider an idol, or the gods of India, the 
Hindu religion, to worship those gods, that's really bad if you're a Christian. But even worse than that is to make an idol and call it God. Or, to put it another way, to use Christian lingo but make up my own idea of what I think God should be. To bring it even closer to our day. I know many people that read the Bible and the text says what it says. And yet they go, man, God can't be like that. I don't think God is like that. It's idol worship, my friends. We can easily, in a song, or in our lives, use the words Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, faith, grace, and yet the next lyric could be completely a God that we have made up. When Jeroboam made these two shrines, he used scripture. This is why heresy is so important. This is why we ought to be reading the Bible and reading it at face value and understanding it and not reading it and then going, no, God can't be like that. My friends, if God revealed himself that way, he is like that. But you see how easy it is to use Christian lingo or scripture lingo. These are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He's quoting Exodus 2. But what's the difference? It isn't God he's talking about. It's the gods he's created that he's talking about. As Christians, we can claim to worship God and yet not worship the God of the Bible. That should scare us to death. This is why doctrine is important. This is why as Christians, we ought to be reading the word of God and understanding it. But this is the idolatry. This is the third indictment. And I'll just summarize verse 4 for you because time is ticking here. What's the result of creating a version of God? Verse 4 says, a spirit of harlotry is within them. And again, this is making reference to the first five books of the Bible. God in the desert had Israel create a tabernacle because God would be with them. What's the result of these two shrines being built, these two golden calves being built? It's not God that's within the people, it's who? Idol worship. It's a false sense of God. The God terminology is there. It's not that it's not there, it's there. They're, they're, they're reading the Torah they're, they're reading the, the, the book of the law that's found in Exodus 21. They are reading this, but it's these idols who they're worshiping. You see the tension here. You, you see the, the reality. We could come to church every Sunday and yet not know the God of the Scriptures. This is the issue in modern-day American Christianity that everyone says, I'm a Christian, but we don't know the God of Scripture. And so they made their own God. And look, here's the pattern of verses 3 and 4. God knows Ephraim and Israel. That's verse 3. Verse 4, they don't know him. He knows them. He knows what they're doing, but they don't know him. Ephraim leads people to prostitution. That's verse 3. Verse 4, now prostitution is within them. The spirit of harlotry is in their camp. Idol worship is in the midst of them. It's not God in the midst of them. It's idol worship. Verse 3, Israel is unclean. Verse 4, their deeds do not allow them to return to God. They don't want to return to God. They are worshiping a false sense of who God is. The spirit of idolatry is within them. 
I won't read verse 5, but here's the, the big accusation. This is why our sermon title is what it is. Israel's pride testifies against them. This is the fifth, or sorry, the fourth indictment in these first seven verses that Israel has become arrogant. The leaders have become arrogant. Now, here's the arrogance. It's in verses 6 and 7. In arrogance, they seek the Lord. And in verse 7, in arrogance, they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. So pride, I'll just cite Proverbs 16, 18. It says, pride has caused uh, um, a proud man. Pride comes before a fall. And a tower is really the, the Hebrew understanding. You, you grow up so tall that eventually you fall. But pride comes before the fall. Israel has fallen. That's why the passage says they've stumbled. And Judah also will stumble. It's the pride. But what is, what is this arrogance? What's the pride? Well, verse 6 says, they come to the Lord. Look, let, let, I'll read verse 6 with you. With their flocks and herds they shall go and seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Now, if we read this, we go, that's bogus, God. They're coming to you, and they can't find you. You've hid yourself from them. That's messed up. But why? Why does it say this? Because it's not genuine. It's a fake repentance. There's no intent to repent. It's like someone saying, sorry, God, for you put the sin for this sin, knowing well in their hearts that they're going to continue doing it, that they're going to continue practicing it. It's not real repentance. So God at this time has, it's not the Lord their God. He's one of many gods, and we've already seen. There are idol worships. They're making their own idols and calling it God. So, so when they come to God, it's not in repentance. It's all these, it's, it's just this simple. I, I think this illustration would help. This morning I woke up and I went to Mount Mizpah and, and the God is there, didn't answer my prayer. And I went to Mount Tabor and the cult shrine goddess and gods didn't answer my prayer. And I went to the two golden calves and they also didn't answer my prayer. So you know what? Maybe God will. So let me take my sacrifices to God. You see the point? It's not just God that they're looking to. It's that God was one of many gods. It's if this one didn't answer me, maybe this one will. And if this one doesn't answer me, maybe the God of Israel will. They're not coming in repentance. He's the just-in-case God. Just in case my bank account doesn't work out this week. I'll pray to God. Just in case my marriage is, is in, 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 in struggles, now I'll look for the Lord. You see the point? It's not genuine. It's not real. There's no real repentance in this passage. And that's why God says, they're going to look, but they won't find. The, the verdict is so strong in verse 5. Israel's pride testifies against themselves. It, I'll give you another illustration just so we can understand this. The point here is, it's like a person going to court and being accused of stealing at Riverside Mall. You stole from H&M at Riverside Mall. And let's say I'm the one being judged, and I show up to court and I go, not guilty. That wasn't me. It's not me. And I keep telling the judge, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. And then the prosecutor comes up, grabs the videotape from that day, 
puts it in, and there I am, stealing. That's what it means. Their pride testifies against them. Israel's guilty. They're just too prideful to see it. That's why the warning in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before the fall. Now, the passage doesn't say they won't go tall. They will. But then there will be a fall. You see, the point here is Israel is so blinded by their pride, they don't notice their arrogance, and yet it testifies. It's like someone in a courtroom saying, I'm not guilty, even though the video footage shows you are guilty. That is the sin you're committing. On a practical point of view, what is the pride in our hearts this morning that we pretend to repent of when in reality we have no, no heart desire to repent? These are the first four, seven verses, and like I said, the rest of this passage is God's answer to this lack of leadership in the priests, in the church, and in the kingdom, this pushing of idols, this making of your own idols, this pride of I can make God one of the many other gods. So what does God respond? Well, in verse 8, these are, look, verse 8, the shofar, the trumpet, again, this, this pattern of three, there's a shofar in Gebeah, this is in the south, these are all places in Benjamin, so there's a shofar born, uh, blown in Gebeah, there is a trumpet in Ramah, a war cry in Beth-Avon, this is the book of Numbers summed up, when there was a time of war, these priests would go up and they'd blow these horns saying, war is coming, and yes, this is a prophecy that Assyria is going to come. It is a prophecy that war is coming upon Judah and upon Israel. But, but, but who and why? And I gave you the answer already. It's Assyria. Verse 9, Ephraim will be in desolation. They will be destroyed because they've allowed this idol worship because God has become, become one of the many gods. That's the, the escalation here. It starts with the priests being bad, leading them to idols that exist, making their own idols, and finally God is just one of the other gods. And because of that, verse 9, they're going to be in desolation. God is going to bring judgment upon them. There is, my friends, a consequence to sin. You live in sin, there's a consequence to it. That's, that's the lesson in verse 8, 9, verse 10. Judah is like those who turn the boundary it refers to uh, an issue. Sorry, Benjamin is the one that turns the boundary. And, and the reference is Benjamin is the tribe in the middle that's between the north and the south. So they would always constantly fight on property land. Whose land is this? Is it the northern kingdoms? Is this the southern? And so Judah, in a sense, what it's doing is it's claiming land in the north and saying it's theirs. That's the emphasis in verse 10, but the point is that there's conflict between Israel and Judah, and what they don't realize is that there's an enemy coming to wipe them out. Verse 11, Ephraim is crushed in judgment because he went after filth. Again, referencing because Jeroboam put these two idols, this is the consequence of that in verse 11. They will be crushed in judgment. Now look at God's words to those idols. They're not the idols that brought you out of Egypt, they're filth. That's strong language. But that's how God sees these idols. They're filthy. They're pointless. Why are you running towards filth? You, you see the emphasis there. So Ephraim will be crushed in judgment. This is the war cry. 
Just picture these verses as people running around in panic. Destruction is coming. Look, here they come from Benjamin and all these places that are cited. And ultimately, although Israel doesn't fully realize it, they will be crushed because of their filth. Now here's the interesting thing. Verses 12 to 14. How will God do it? How does God do it? Verse 12 We don't have time to read it, but verse 12 says, that's why I wanted to read it at the beginning. I'm just going to explain it. It uses a moth to Ephraim and a rot to Judah. The point here is destruction is slow. Think of moth as maggots eating at your flesh. Or if you have a wound and the, the, the pus that comes out of the wound. It's, in other words, it's an injury unattended. The arrogance of the leadership of Israel has left all of Israel with a bunch of wounds, but they're unattended. So just think of a cut. What happens to a cut? Bacteria gets in it. It gets infected. If you don't cover it with a bandit, or depending on how deep it is, if you don't get it stitched up, your whole body gets infected. So the idea here of moth to Ephraim and a dry rot to Judah is that it's going to be a slow and gradual, or in other words, Judah and and, and Ephraim, the northern and the southern part, part of the kingdoms, are slowly dying out. And they don't realize it because they're blinded by their arrogance. They, they, it's the Christian. I, I like using modern terminology because it helps us understand the text. It's the Christian that says, it's wrong, but eh, it's not that bad. This sin is wrong, but it's not that bad. This is what's going on here. They're so arrogant that they don't realize, no, it is bad. It's killing you. It's destroying your life. And not just your physical life, but your spiritual life. And yet the arrogance doesn't let them see it. But what, does they, what do they do? This is the final indictment, verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wounds, did they turn to God? Did they seek Yahweh? No. What did Ephraim do? Look at verse 13. It says, and then Ephraim went to Assyria. This is referencing, if you're taking notes, 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 17 through 20, when the king of Israel, Menachem, used the wealthy men of Israel to pay off the king of Assyria. They went to Assyria for help. Judah will also do this in 2 Kings 16 with Ahaz. Although in Hosea, the emphasis is specifically on the northern kingdom because that's who Hosea is prophesying to. The point that I want to bring up to you is that both the northern kingdom and the south will not look to Yahweh during these moments of distress. If the idols don't answer, and if God hasn't answered, well, maybe Assyria will. Now here's the... The big, if this was the movie, this is the the unexpected turn of event. Verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Even I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Who do they go to? Someone answer. Who? I just told you. Assyria. There's two things here. One, clearly, God is the one bringing judgment. That's the first part. 
Now this is in contrast to verse 12, where in verse 12, Israel is slowly rotting away, and Ephraim is slowly, uh, and Judah is slowly rotting, and, and Ephraim is, is like a moth. In verse 14, the contrast is, this devouring will be quick. Picture a lion. Does a lion take its time eating its meat? No, it's quick. It's sudden. It starts off slow. It's almost like God is giving them time to repent. But what do they do? They don't repent. They go to Assyria for help. So in verse 14, the metaphor, okay, destruction will come quickly. That's one. But this is where the climax comes in. This is where the unexpected event comes in. Lion is also Assyrian war propaganda. If you don't know what that is, think of our country, Uncle Sam, for many years was our war propaganda. I want you in the army. And there's the picture of Uncle Sam. This is what's happening here. The people that Israel went to, not only did they go to gods, not only did they make their own gods, not only did they think of God as one of many, but when that didn't work out, they went to Assyria, and it's those same people that will conquer them. You see the plot twist? You see what's going on in verse 14? That's why the verse says, there will be no rescue. Because the people that you look for help are the ones that are going to conquer you. What is the consequence of arrogant sin? It comes when you don't expect it. The arrogance of sin, the consequence of being arrogant, of not putting God first, is that when you least expect it, it hits you and you don't realize it. Pride goes before the fall. That's the point of Proverbs 16. 18. You don't expect it, yet it comes. Israel goes to Assyria, and surprise, surprise, that's the nation God uses to bring judgment. Hope. Verse 15, which is a transition to chapter 16. I will return again to my place. This is again this lion metaphor. It, in the Hebrew, it's God going back to his lair, like a lion. After he's devoured, he goes back. But look at what God says. This is the message of hope in verse 15. Until they acknowledge their guilt or iniquity or sin and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. I mentioned this earlier on. Why does God bring judgment upon Ephraim? The purpose is maybe finally, after all this, Israel will return. For Christians, one, we are not to take sin lightly. That's the one thing I want you to get out of today. But two, if we come in true repentance, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who forgives our sins. Now, the emphasis, it has to be true repentance. If you come to church living this, whatever you want to call it, Christian life, I'll, I'll just go to God so that he can give me a gold sticker in heaven, like if it were kindergarten class. Let me check that off for the day. We have a wrong understanding of church. It has to be in true repentance. So, God says in verse 15, I will go away until I finally see a repentant heart. Earlier in the chapter, Israel's bringing sacrifices. This is the point that I want you to understand. In our language, it's they're singing the songs on the lyrics. They've got their Bibles open in church. What they don't have is a heart devoted to God. So God says in verse 15, I will go away until this is real, until they acknowledge their sin. That is the good news for us. That if we come in repentance, real repentance, God does not turn away to real repentance. He forgives. He gives new life. 
He transforms hearts. That's the power of the gospel. Dead in our sins and trespasses. But if we come in repentance, God does forgive. So if you've been playing this idea of Christianity described in chapter 5, repent. Repent. Real repentance. Repent for real. And God will be faithful. And he will forgive your iniquity. Let's stand up. And let's pray. Father, as we conclude chapter 5, I pray that we would search deep in our hearts. And I pray that we would look deep within, that you, Holy Spirit, right now would look deep within our hearts and bring conviction in our hearts if we've turned the other way from the word, if we've fallen from your word, if we've made and served other idols, if we're worshiping a false sense of God, if we're looking for other things to replace the God who provides. Father, that we would, through your Holy Spirit, see the pride and the arrogance of our sin that so easily blinds us and that we would turn to you in repentance. I pray, Lord, that if no one's ever known the gospel, that even through this message today, people would leave here saying, I want to turn to Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. We pray that as a church. And if there's anyone that has fallen away, Father, bring us back in repentance, in real repentance. Lord, in your name, we thank you and we pray and we all say, amen.